Well, good morning. I'm curious what you might be concerned about today. Um, I know that there's a lot going on in our world. Um, some of you may be concerned about the rising prices of homes. Others of you may be concerned about things that are going on in the world, like what's happening in Haiti and Afghanistan. Some of you may be concerned about whether the Cowboys are going to actually be able to have a healthy quarterback next year. I think it ranges, right? There's all kinds of things that we think about that are in our mind, and I just want to let you in on one of my really big concerns. In fact, it's been a concern for a long time. You see, as we've looked at how we transfer our faith to the next generation, there has been a 20-year consistent statistic, and that is that 70% of students that grow up in church leave their faith in college, walk away, And only about 35% of them are coming back at some point in their life. This is a consistent 20-year trend. And some of you are asking, well, what is the church doing wrong? And you know, that's been a question that I've been wrestling with for years. And while I was wrestling that, with that, Hill Country Bible Church has built a world-class student ministry. From our Sunday morning student gatherings to our uh, small groups, from our great adventure to our extreme adventure, from our mission trips to our retreats, we have had one of the best student ministries in the country, and yet those statistics still persist. And they don't just represent a number, they represent your kids and my kids. So while we were trying to solve this problem by creating a better ministry at church, a sociologist named Christian Smith did a massive research project where they talked to teens who had then moved on into their 20s, into college, and then beyond to try to discover what was happening. And here's what they found. What they found was that students who stayed with their faith primarily were shaped by their home. In other words, it wasn't the church that made the difference, it was the family. It wasn't student ministry programs, it was actually authentic relationships with Christ-following adults that had the biggest influence on whether a a child would stay with their Christian faith as they went on into life or whether they would get sidetracked and walk away. And why should we be surprised by that? Because the scripture actually says that, that faith begins at home. In fact, when you look at how God has designed a child, and we talked a little bit about this last week, that the family is actually the incubator based on the physiological, emotional, and spiritual design and the developmental stages of a child's life to have their greatest influence by watching and mimicking and experiencing their family and then, by extension, the other adult relationships that they develop during childhood, that's the biggest indicator. And so, at Hill Country Bible Church, we we just understand that we're still going to have a world-class student ministry, but more importantly than that, 
Our desire is to resource and remind families and parents that they are the primary disciplers of their children and the primary determiners of whether their children will stay with their faith when they leave or not. I mean, here's the crazy thing. Like, our vision, our mission, is to saturate all of greater Austin and beyond with the love of Jesus. But if we're losing our own kids, like, that doesn't even make sense, right? I mean, the the greatest force for good in the world is a follower of Jesus Christ and everyone that we lose because they don't catch it and internalize it and live it out, that's just crazy, right? That's just a shame. And it's also heartbreaking for the people involved. So we started a, a sermon series called Faith at Home, and we're focused on this. And last week as we started, we started with kind of that primary relationship that's determinative for the family, which is the marriage. And if you missed that, I want you to go back and listen to it from last week because it's very important we understand what Christian marriage is. It's not two Christians who are married. It actually takes on the quality of Jesus and his relationship with his church and how all that works out. This week, we're going to talk about leaving a legacy. How do we leave a legacy? So here's what I want you to do. In order to get the most out of this message for you personally, I want you to right now in your mind map yourself back to the closest child, children, or students that are connected to you. Okay? I want you to get their faces in your mind. Now, for some of you, that's going to be really easy because I would put you in the category that I call the owners. In other words, you're actually parents and you've got kids living in your house. Like, you get that. Now, you, you names, like, you got, they're in your head, okay? Grandparents, you are owners too, right? Like, you have a responsibility. So you have those names and faces. Now, for some of you, you may not automatically or think about, like, what's my connection to other, you know, to the kids. And so I would encourage you, um, what I would call you as a participant. So you may be single, you may be married without kids, you may be an empty nester, and you're thinking, well, like, how do I fit into this? And here's what I would say. If you're an aunt or an uncle or a cousin or you have any kind of relative relationship, who are those children? Like, think about who they are. Get them in your mind right now. Now, if if you're a a believer in Jesus Christ, we know that part of what that means is that you've been brought into a family, the family of God. So, like, it's not just parents, it's all of us that are responsible for passing on our faith. So I would encourage you to think about this. Do you have any friends that have kids? What's your connection there? What could you do to help? Neighbors, kids in the neighborhood. If... Faith is primarily caught rather than taught. Think about this. Every grumpy encounter that a child has shapes their view of the older generation. 
whether I want to follow those values or not. Like, we're, we, we all make a difference, right? If you're a teacher, if you're a coach, like everybody here, I want you to think about who is the connection. And here's the reason why you need to think about that, because we're going to go through some principles, and these principles are stuff that all of us need to know, whether we've got kids under our care right now or we have kids in our orbit. So do you have a face in your mind? Maybe you've never thought about this before. Do you have a name? Do you have kids that you're thinking about as we go into this message? So as we dive in here, that's what I want you to do. And we're going to go through four principles today. And these principles come from the book. It starts at home uh, by Kurt Brunner and Steve Stroop. A great, great tool. There's more information than that. We highly recommend it to you. It gives you a lot of principles. But we're going to dive in today and we're going to talk about some principles. So we're starting... Back in the Old Testament book of Exodus, and we're looking at one of the commandments. This is where we're going to start today. So we're in Exodus chapter 20, and the second command is, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above, on the earth beneath, or the waters below you. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Now, now let me just pause for just a moment. This, this means that if it's anything, whether it is a, a physical idol that's shaped to bow down to or whether it's an F-150, like anything that you prioritize, that you value, that you, this is your deal. Could be your career. Could be the college you're trying to get your kid into. Whatever it is, if you worship it, if it's priority one to you, you have violated this command. And it has repercussions. He goes on to say, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So here's the principle that we see in this commandment. That what we worship will bring down from God either a cycle of pain and punishment or a cycle of love and blessing on the next generation. And you say, well, well that's not fair. Like, why should that be the case? And, and I would say it absolutely isn't fair. It's not fair to the next generation. It's not fair for, to the next generation for a dad or mom to worship something other than God and bring that into their family. But we do it all the time. And the reality is because God created our kids to gain our sense of self and our worldview from us as parents, this is inevitable. This is what happens. And we know it. We've got all kinds of phrases for it. Apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. He's a chip off the old block. We know, like father, like son. Now, some of you may be saying, well, like, what's this deal like to the third and fourth generation? And, and this is the moment where, I, let me explain a little bit about the culture. The culture he's writing to it was a clan-based culture, so it was not uncommon for parent, child, grandchild, great-grandchild, all four generations to be living in the same clan, in the same household. So when he says, visiting it down to the third or fourth generation, he's not saying that 
you know, 20 years later in another distant country where another family lives that it will jump over to them, even though we do see that happen. What he's actually saying is, is that whoever is leading the clan, if they hate God and they hate the ways of God, it's going to have a negative effect on everybody. But here's the cool thing. He goes on to say, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. In other words, the exponential impact of a family or of an individual who invests God's love and a clear understanding of God into the next generation is transformational, not just one generation or two generations or three. It keeps going. In other words, if you want to change the world, it starts with me, right? And this huge vision of how I pass my faith on to the next generation. Now, what this principle is called is the legacy principle. It's the legacy principle. What we do today will have a direct influence on the future generations for good or for bad. What we do today makes a difference. So if you don't carve out investment time and capital to invest in the next generation, whether they're directly your responsibility, your kids or your grandkids, or whether they're kind of in your responsible or because you're a relative, or whether they're in your neighborhood. If you don't carve out time to pass that on, don't complain about what the next generation becomes. Because we all have the opportunity to make a difference. It's the legacy principle. So think about it this way. What you do today matters. How you treat kids today matters. And some of you say, well, like I didn't have anything Growing up, like, I don't know that I have anything to offer. Here's all I would say, is regardless of what you got, make a commitment to give something better to the next generation. Now, let me show you how this actually works. I want you to see a family in our church, and you're going to see three generations, the parents, the children, and the grandchildren. Watch the ShowQuest family. Well, it really started um, long before uh, us. I saw my parents serving uh, from a very early age as well. So my mother, a Sunday school teacher, my dad uh, served a lot of different on the board in the church, and uh, they were just you know very generous. And those would be kind of characteristics that I could hope to continue uh, as part of our legacy. My parents are local, so they were always there for us and to talk to us and mentor us. And even like now, as our kids were growing up, it was just neat. The most important thing about life is spiritual. When I talk to my mom and dad on the phone, that's the first thing, right? And then how they always end every phone call is, how can we be praying for you now? So with my parents, they really do spend every day in the Word of God. My dad listens to sermons all the time. You know, we live out in the country, so we drive a lot. And so anytime we're driving, he has a sermon on. Or my mom, every morning, the first thing she does is get, gets up and opens her Bible. What inspired me the most about my parents' walk with Christ was that they spend a lot of time each day with Jesus. 
I think that word routine is pretty important for me. You know, I, I love to listen to sermons, you know, Deuteronomy 6, 7, whether you're in the house, on the road, you know, kind of all waking moments, sleeping moments, meditate and teach, you know, what the Lord has for us and His commandments. I, I love to constantly be listening, whether I'm on the tractor, in the car, mowing, walking around, you know, just in the background all the time. You know, you never know um, as you're raising your children. We have three children, six grandchildren. Um, you know, uh, how you do. I mean, we attempted to be consistent. We attempted to um, be in the Word, be praying, um, going, taking them to church. Um, yeah, just, uh, uh, but you never know. And then probably it wasn't until we actually saw our grandchildren making the decision to accept Christ as their personal savior, uh, then following what their parents had done at an early age as well, that we realized, yeah, they must have got it. Honestly, it's the best thing that has ever happened to all of us, to have parents and grandparents who just love the Lord that much. I think for our family, just having that uh, common bond of being able to be together, worshiping Christ together, uh, growing in the Word together, it was phenomenal. I think it was, it's a, been a growing experience. I think there's been a lot of spiritual growth in our life. And so just being able to live it out together as a family has been really special. And uh, Hill Country's provided a lot of opportunities to serve others, and we'd love to serve. Isn't that great? Well, I love that. So the ShowQuest family is, is uh, really special to me um, because I had a privilege of going to Israel with all three of these generations. They all came on an Israel trip, and in one of the pictures you saw there, you saw those four children being baptized. I guess their grand, the grandchildren are all being, were being baptized in the River Jordan, so we had that privilege to baptize all of them there. But we were on the Sea of Galilee in a boat that we were going across, and we were out in the water where Jesus walked on water and where he calmed the storm and so forth. And we had all the people in the group together, and we were worshiping. We were singing songs of worship while we were out on that really special place. And I looked over, and I saw Sam and Linda, and Sam was crying and I, I was trying to figure out what he was looking at, so I, I looked in the direction where he was looking at, and I looked over and I saw the grandkids seated over on the other side of the boat, and they were all crying. And I was trying to figure out where they were looking, and they were looking at their mom and dad who were seated in the middle of the boat, and they were all crying. And we had a whole family, three generations, that were caught up together in the worship of Jesus and all of them were emotionally heart-connected, not only to God, but also to each other. And I thought, that's a picture of heaven. But that's what heaven looks like. And that's how God intended in this legacy principle that we would literally act in a way today that would have a direct influence on the future generations, and it would be for good and not for bad. So that's the first principle we're going to look at today. The second principle comes from Proverbs 
In Proverbs 22, 6, it says, Train a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not turn from it. Now, out of this passage, train a child, and he will not turn from it, comes the likelihood principle. The likelihood principle is that in the context of strong relationships, children tend to embrace the beliefs and values of their parents. Now, there's a key word here, and the key word is the word tend to. Here's one of the challenges. Proverbs are not promises. They're wise principles to heed, but they're not promises to claim. And some people mistake this type of literature and they think, like, this is a guarantee that if I do the right thing with my kids, then they have to follow Jesus when they get older. There's only one problem with that. And the problem is that every individual has a free will, so nothing you can do will force or guarantee that that free will will be set aside and they'll be forced to have to follow. Everybody has a free will. So, I mean, think about what a proverb actually is. Let me give you an example of a modern-day proverb. Modern-day proverb would be Something like, absence makes the heart grow fonder, right? And if two people love each other, the tendency is that that's true. But would we say it's always true? For all of you who had somebody special in your life that was going off to college and promised you that they would write every day or now they would text every day, and that like just being apart would make your relationship so much better and they left... And they join the fraternity or the sorority and you never heard from them again? Like anybody here have that experience? Like you know? In that case, there's another proverb that's true, which is out of sight, out of mind, right? Like both of those things tend to be true. Neither one of them guarantee that's not what the proverbs do. What the Proverbs say is that the odds are greater that if you follow the way of God, things are going to go better for you, and they're going to go better for your kids. And that's the likelihood principle. In the context of strong relationships, children tend to embrace the beliefs and values of their parents. It's more likely than not. So... The question you have to ask if you're a parent or if you're investing in the next generation is, well, if I stop doing it, they still may follow Jesus, but it's less likely. It's less likely. Some of you say, I didn't come to faith until later in life, and so, like, that's how God works, right? Not always. And so what we're called to do is invest now. Now, I know that there are some of you who did everything right. Like you followed all what you thought you were supposed to do. You prayed with your kids. You brought them to church. You, you, you invested in them. You sent them to camp. Like you talked to them about their faith. And they've walked away at this point in time. And I know you are heartbroken. Many of you are thinking, like, what did I do wrong? Like, like it, I thought if I did all that, it would guarantee it. And I just want you to know 
that everybody has a free will. And they can choose what they want to do. But I would also tell you, you can spend your time going back and second-guessing your past, but it's actually more profitable for your kids even now if you spend that time praying for their future. Because every moment you spend beating yourself up or going back and second-guessing, as heartbreaking as it is, and I know I've spent some nights praying over my kids and wondering, are they going to follow Jesus or not? Like I have, I understand that. But the best thing you can do now is continue to love, continue to live for Christ, and continue to pray, and it's not over. There's still hope, okay? So the likelihood principle It's important to understand the value of strong relationships. It's not just what you say, it's who you are that makes a difference. And so when you think about who you are, ask yourself this question, how am I with my kids? How am I with my grandkids? How am I with the children that God you've placed in my life? How am I? Am I a person that brings joy and encouragement and compassion and kindness and love and truth and honesty? Is that what they experience in me? Because the more they like you, the more likely they are to like what you like. The more they believe in you, the more likely they are to believe what you believe. The more they see in you a person of value, the more likely they are to value what you value. And one of the things I'm highly concerned about today is the busyness and stress of the schedules that we've chosen for ourselves. And you say, no, 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 I didn't choose this. This is just, all these things, they require so much of me. Uh Uh-uh, you have free will. You're not in jail. Right? You're not in jail. You make choices. What happens to us on stress happens to our kids, too. Because we happen to them. And so the tension and being overwhelmed, and being distracted, and being angry, and frustrated, and complaining, fearful. So ask the question, who am I, and who am I becoming? Because you have a powerful influence. And do not discount, if you're not a parent, how much influence you can have with others, and other kids in your life. So Freshman year in high school, one of my sons and I start talking about what he's learning, and he's going through a biology class where they're teaching him kind of an atheistic point of view about how the world and the origins and that God doesn't exist, and his high school teacher was very provocatively um, kind of anti-Christian and all that, and so like, I'm starting to process this with him, and I said, well, how are you doing in there? And he said, well, I'm doing pretty good, and I said, well, t- tell me about what, what you're wrestling with. And he said, I'm not really wrestling with anything, and I said, why aren't you wrestling with anything? And he said, well, because, you know, I, I know the cosmological argument and the anthropological argument and the teleological argument for the existence of God. And my jaw drops. 
And then he started walking through the scientific issues related to creation and evolution and what's true and what's myth and the fallacies in some of Darwin's thinking that was being taught even currently in school. And he's walking through all that. And I'm like, whoa, I must be a good preacher. <laughs> he's dialed in, right? And I said, where'd you get that? And he said, my fifth grade Sunday school class. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, Dr. Morrow he taught me in fifth grade. He taught all us boys. He said, I got a notebook. He takes me up to his room, digs through his stuff, and pulls out a notebook with his handwritten notes. And I'm reading stuff that I learned in seminary. And he learned in fifth grade because he had a teacher that was not a theologian, but took the time to prepare, and he was loved by those boys. Some of you think, my fifth grader can't learn anything. They have got you fooled. <laughs> TikTok is teaching them all kinds of things right now. It really is. It's teaching them all kinds of things right now. They're learning all kinds of things. And I'm just so grateful for a man who decided, like, I've got my kids, but I also want to invest in other people's kids too. And he made a, a huge difference in my son's life. And way beyond even what parents can do. So don't discount your role. So the likelihood principle in the context of strong relationships Children tend to embrace the beliefs and values of their parents and, I would add, the other significant relationships in their life, okay? Let's move on to the third principle. The third principle is the lenses principle. The lenses principle. Our children need the corrective lenses of truth to navigate the deceptive roads of life. We need the corrective lenses of truth to navigate the deceptive roads of life. So how many of you here are wearing corrective lenses right now? Anybody? How many of you here had surgery and you just start kind of lying to us, you know, like you didn't, get it, you didn't get them corrected, you're walking around bragging about your eyesight, but yeah, you really got them fixed, right? So why in the world do we have corrective lenses? Why do we do that? The reason why we do that is because if we don't have our vision corrected, the world around us is distorted. We don't actually see the reality of what's there. We see some kind of a distortion of it. And it's so important for children to grow up to be able to identify what's real and what's true from what's distorted and what's untrue. Some of us think that the greatest enemy of our children will be found in the normal circumstances of children growing up. And I would just tell you, the greatest enemy of your child is not being left out. It's not being left behind. It's not failing an exam. It's not getting a rejection letter from a college. It's not losing a game. It's not even being bullied. It's not COVID, and it's not masks. 
the greatest enemy of your child is Satan himself, who is constantly sowing seeds of lies into every aspect of culture. It's in our technology, it's in our advertising, it's in our movies, it's in our conversations, it's in our consumerism, it's in our schools. Like, lies are being sown all the time, and they have a powerful, deceptive property. In fact, Jesus was talking to the religious leaders during his day, the people that perceived themselves closest to God, who would say, God is actually our Father, and what we do is everything he said we were supposed to do. These people read and studied the Old Testament. And here's what Jesus said to them in John chapter 8, verse 44. He says, no, 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 God's not your Father. You actually belong to your Father, the devil. And you want to carry out your Father's desires. Why would they want to do what Satan wants them to do? It says he was a murderer from the beginning, is not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. In other words, they had believed a lie, begun to act upon that lie, and by acting upon that lie, they were actually doing the will of the devil. And the greatest danger to the next generation is to be taught and believe a lie. Now, what's important to understand is, is truth and reality are the same thing. Like, truth is not relative. It's in the eye of the beholder. Truth and reality are the same thing. God created the world. He spoke it into existence. God spoke truth That is what's real. And that's why it's the only thing that actually works in our lives and in society are God's ways. All the other things that are tainted and distorted are not going to actually produce the fruit of the Spirit, the forgiveness of salvation. They're not going to produce the kinds of marriages, the kinds of families, the kinds of friendship, the kinds of society, the kinds of government. They're not going to produce that. It will all be warped, and in it being warped, it will do damage. So that's what truth actually is. Now, you can spend your life running around trying to find out what all the lies are out there, and we're going to talk about that in a coming sermon in a couple weeks. What are all the lies out there that people are encouraged to believe that come right from Satan? Some of them are so common they roll off our lips without even thinking about it. But what's better than simply trying your best to counteract all of the lies and living in fear that another lie slipped into your child's mind is to actually give them the corrective lenses of the Word of God so that they can begin to see the truth and be able to understand the lies. Here's what Jesus said earlier in this chapter to his disciples. Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Like, listen to what I'm saying and do what I'm saying. He says, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. If you want to free your children for a lifelong understanding of how to defeat the lies of the enemy, it's critical that you start by helping them from a very early age learn the Word of God, memorize the Word of God, begin to understand how to apply it, And that's transformational. In fact, some of you might be feeling, well, 
there's probably some lies that I'm believing right now. And I would encourage you, do you study the Bible? Do you memorize key passages of Scripture? I mean, one of the best things that my parents did for me when I was young was get me to memorize literally chapters and chapters and chapters of Scripture. And it wasn't like, I'm teaching you to memorize these chapters of Scripture to avoid all this evil, but I look back over the course of my life and how much of my worldview, how much of the way I think about the world has actually been just shaped by all that Scripture that they just encouraged me to memorize. Like I can launch into multiple passages right now in the old King James that I learned when I was four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old. And I would just say that that's what can keep us from falling prey to the enemy, okay? And so that is the principle of the lenses. So there's one more principle that I want to share with you, and that is the learning principle, So we looked at the legacy principle, the likelihood principle, the lenses principle, and here's the last one, the learning principle, and it goes like this. Our children will learn what we teach them in a manner that will reach them. We'll learn what we teach them in a manner that will reach them. In other words, you have to teach your children in a way that they're actually capable of learning and receiving. So here's the passage of Scripture in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. In other words, we give who we've become. So it starts with us as parents or adults loving God completely and Making that the focus of our inner being, that's who we are. And then from there, he goes on to say, impress them on your children. Now, what he doesn't say here is instruct them to your children. Your goal is not to be a Sunday school teacher. Your goal is to be a person that's more interested in impressing than informing. So how do we impress? He goes on to talk, talk about that. He says, impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, except when you drive in your minivan. When you lie down and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your forehead. In other words, make your accessories to your outfits be the truth of God. Now, that's metaphorical, but it's like, Clothe yourselves so when your kids experience you, they experience a love for God. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. In other words, everywhere your kids go, all the time together, every time you're with them, or whenever you're with a cousin or a nephew or a niece, or whenever you're with your students, or whenever you're working in children's ministry or whatever, what is the way to reach these children? How can I help them get it? And much of what we get about love is not explained, it's experienced. So when I'm talking about the love of Jesus, are they experiencing the love in me? When I'm talking about wisdom, are they seeing a wise example? So I'm 
trying to impress on them in a way that they can get it. Now, what's also interesting is, is your children along the way are impressed in different ways at different times. And in, in many ways, understanding this makes a lot of difference. So if you think about the, the windows of opportunity that you have before a child steps into adulthood, and you look at their receptivity and compare that to their age, there's this interesting curve on receptivity. So when you've got like a six-month-old, the receptivity is a little lower. And when you've got a 22-year-old, the receptivity is kind of non-existent. <laughs> and then when they get to 28, then all of a sudden they're surprised at how much you've learned <laughs> over those six years, right? It's like, wow, you really learned a lot. Just kidding. Sorry about that. If you're 28, sorry about that. Uh, just, just kidding. Your parents got it. You know. So th this period of time, the imprint period, is when a child is basically taking in experiences and information that come from mom and dad. Like they just receive it. They, they don't evaluate it. They just receive it. They just take it in and, and they absorb it. Then when they get to the impression age, 7 to 15, now they move to begin to ask why. It's not enough for mom and dad to say it or for another adult to say it. They're beginning to wonder because they're starting to form their own cognitive understanding and they've got to go deeper than this is what I've heard or this is what has been shared with me. Now I've got to really begin to, to own this themselves. And then the final phase from about 14, 15 on is the coaching phase where they actually now have to go out and begin to put some things into their life and learn by experience. And so these phases are very significant in the process. I, I want you to understand how powerful the younger time is. This is very important, and I want you to watch The Backward Bicycle to understand that. Let's watch together. Like many six-year-olds with a MacGyver mullet, I learned how to ride a bike when I was really young. I had learned a life skill, and I was really proud of it. Everything changed, though, when my friend Barney called me 25 years later. Where I work, the welders are geniuses, and they like to play jokes on the engineers. He had a challenge for me. He had built a special bicycle, and he wanted me to try to ride it. He had only changed one thing. When you turn the handlebar to the left, the wheel goes to the right. When you turn it to the right, the wheel goes to the left. I thought this would be easy, so I hopped on the bike ready to demonstrate how quickly I could conquer this. And here he is, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Destin Sandlin. First attempt riding the bicycle. I couldn't do it. You can see that I'm laughing, but I'm actually really frustrated. So here's what I did. It was a personal challenge. I stayed out here in this driveway and I practiced about five minutes every day. My neighbors made fun of me. I had many wrecks, but after eight months, this happened. One day I couldn't ride the bike and the next day I could. It was like I could feel some kind of pathway in my brain that was now unlocked. It was really weird though. It's like there's this trail in my brain, but if I wasn't paying close enough attention to it, my brain would easily lose that neural path and jump back onto the old road it was more familiar with. Any small distractions at all, like a cell phone ringing in my pocket, would instantly throw my brain back to the old control algorithm and I would wreck. But at least I could ride it. My son is the closest person to me genetically, and he's been riding a normal bike for three years. That's over half his life. 
I wanted to know how long it would take him to learn how to ride a backwards bike, so I told him if he learned how to ride a backwards bike, he could go with me to Australia and meet a real astronaut. Are you gonna give up? No. Go ahead. This is how it starts. Look at this. This is such a big deal. Get up, you got it. Did you see his brain get it? So he, in, how many weeks have we been doing this? Two weeks? In two weeks, he did something that took me eight months to do, which demonstrates that a child has more neuroplasticity, am I even saying that right, than an adult. It's clear from this experiment that children have a much more plastic brain than adults. That's why the best time to learn a language is when you're a young child. Did you get that? So some of you are, are wondering, like, there are things I want to change about myself, um, and I tried for a couple weeks to change them, but it just doesn't seem like it's going to work, right? So uh, he gave eight months, took him eight months but it didn't take his kid, who's six years old, two weeks to change a pattern that was in their mind. Why did God make a child's brain like that? So it has the flexibility to adapt so that it could learn and grow. What's so important is to understand children are wired to take in everything that's why childhood trauma, sometimes it happens way down here, two, three years old, manifests itself later in life because there are impressions that are subconscious, that are below what the child even realizes that can stay with them. That's why it's so important to think about these early stages of life because that's when a child gets the most information, the most help, and the most personal growth. What's also very important, and I'll just mention this because I, I, we'll go into this later on in, in the future, but I just want to mention this to you. Their brain is still forming. They still have neuroplasticity. Um, most of the time, girls about 18, 19, boys about 21, 22, 23, still, still pretty pliable. And so what happens if you pour Jesus and your values into your child and they get the smartphone? Is it possible that you could unform everything that you've invested your life in just by handing a piece of technology that now is their best friend 24 hours a day, seven days a week? Just something to think about. There's something to think about. So, we need to teach them in a way that actually reaches them. That's the encouragement for us. So here's what I want you to know. I want you to know that nothing changes unless you make a plan. You've got to decide where you are whether you have kids in your home, grandkids in your family, whether you're connected in some way, whether you're going to get involved with people around you, the faces that you saw when we first started, whether you're going to do your part in getting involved in the next generation. And our, our responsibility as a church is to continue to remind and continue to equip and continue to resource you. So we started our family centers 
at each of our locations where you can actually go and talk to someone in the family ministry, get some coaching. We're going to be doing seminars. We're going to be doing classes going forward. we got resources to recommend to you, lots of things. And you can get everything that we're doing online uh, at HCBC slash family.com slash family. So all these resources are available. And next week, when we get back together, we're actually going to spend a little bit of time in the service for each person here in whatever stage of life you find yourself doing a little bit of an assessment on how do you feel about your life. And then we're going to do an assessment that gets you started on a 120-day plan, simple plan, to begin to take steps forward in your personal life, your relationships, in your marriage, in your family, with your friends, with the next generation, because we don't want anybody to just hear truth. We want to help you take those positive steps. Think about bringing love and blessing to a thousand generations. What you choose to do with your investment in the next generation, God promises, has massive future impact. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, I just thank you for each person that has joined us online, joined us in person today, joined us at Steiner at Lakeline in our venues. And Father, we pray that each of us would gain a passion and an understanding that we've got something to give and that we would make a difference for your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.